If you have a Bible with you, please open it up to the book of John. And we will be reading out of the book of John, but first I'm going to read a, some lyrics from a song by a band you, I'm guessing the vast majority of you have never heard of, uh, named Guster. It's one of my favorite bands, but they are not Christian. Um, and they wrote a song called Bad, Bad World. And um, the purpose of this song, really the purpose of the whole CD, is almost a critique of Christianity. Um, and it's actually a well-wrought critique of what many Christians say and think. And this is a specific critique of the way we happen to view depravity. The lyrics, which are not tremendous, the music is actually not bad, but the lyrics aren't tremendous, but these are the, the lyrics. I'm wide awake, it's the middle of the night, standing in the dark, waiting up for the light. And here I'll remain till the sun is in the sky, standing in the dark, waiting up for the light. There is love, there is peace in this world. So take it back, say it's not what you had thought. It's not such a bad, bad world. Well, I mean, you can see where they're coming from. They're, they're, they're saying, you Christians seem to think that this world is only filled with evil and only filled with bad, but there is love, there is peace in the world. Simply put, they're decrying the emphasis in much of Christian thought for, from the time of the New Testament on through that there is depravity in this world, that this world is sick, it is evil, it is wicked, and that it needs a savior. They are, in essence, arguing against what Paul says in Galatians 1.4, that Christ has rescued us from the present evil age. They're saying it can't be that evil. Now you'll notice, though, how religious all of this is. The song doesn't necessarily sound religious, but it's filled with religious imagery and religious imagery that John the Apostle himself uses. Notice how he talks about he's, he's wide awake in the middle of the night and he's standing in the dark, but he is waiting for the light. There's this picture of darkness and light, the same kind of pictures that the Apostle John is pulling on. What's more, this song is filled with dogma. He's telling you to say this or take this back. He's, he's saying, take back your emphasis on it, it being a bad, bad world. You are to recant that, and instead you're to say what it's not. It's not what you had thought. It wasn't quite as bad. You are to confess these things. But they're very, very careful. And this is what I'm much more impressed with than any of the other stuff. And they're very careful because they want you to not take back the idea that it's a bad, bad world, and instead confess that it's a great world or a good world or a world that is already okay. What they're wanting you to confess is simply that it's not a bad, bad world, which does leave open the opportunity to say that it is a, is a bad world, but it's, that's not a bad, bad world, right? That means it's not wholly bad. And they're stressing that they're waiting in the dark, that whatever light is supposed to come to them is not there yet. They admit that the world around them is filled with this darkness, is filled with evil and it's filled with wrong. They do have this sort of unmitigated optimism that the light is coming. I picked this song because I think that it is a wonderful example of almost exactly what the world tends to think of. We tend to think of the world as a dark place, but we also tend to think of the world as a place where the, the good will always sort of win out. Our hero movies superhero movies and our fairy tales are always built around this kind of thing, especially today. There aren't dark endings in things like this. The stories that kind of define us are always defined by the good winning. It's not that that's all wrong. They are correct, 
in their assessment. The light will come. Good will come. Those hero movies, those great either superhero movies or other movies that always end with the good guys winning are not wrong. The good guys will win. The problem is how we identify who is good and who is bad. Do we actually live in a bad, bad world? The reason why Christians have so long thought that is because the Bible has, since its inception, taught that. We live in a bad, bad world, and we are part of that bad, bad world. We are not looking outward and saying that the world that surrounds us is wicked and evil, and we, we get a pass on that. The Bible is right in its condemnation of every person. But interestingly, I think John says something specific about it in these four short verses that we will read today. And we're going to back up. We're going to read the whole context because it's still fresh. And we're going to back up to verse 1 and read down through verse 13. So if you would, open your Bibles and read with me the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of our Lord. We're going to look just at three things from these four short verses today. First, God is present everywhere. God is present everywhere. I I used to read these verses and think that that John is being somewhat repetitive here. And, And I'm not saying that in sort of a nasty way. I don't think that repetition is inherently wrong or bad. Repetition is incredibly important when trying to get your point across. Anyone who has ever had a dog or children or anyone who needs to be told things more than once like me, anyone who knows that knows that repetition is an important thing. I need to be told things time and time again in order to get them through. So repetition from God's word is incredibly helpful. And so I used to read this and think, well, what Verse 9 is saying, verse 10 just kind of makes it sound like it's not just future, it's, it's already happened. So verse 9 says, the true light was coming into the world, and then verse 10 says, well, you know, okay, I, I said he was coming into the world, but what I mean was he was already in the world. And, and then verse 14 talks about the word becoming flesh. And so I, I thought that it was a way simply of building that repetition, that this infinite mighty God was coming to us in the, the, in the form of a human man. But I was convinced otherwise by Augustine. And he argues, he doesn't really even argue it, he just kind of states this, that these verses were not about the coming of Christ, but the ever-presence of Christ even before he came as a man. It is about the fact that God is present in the world. He is everywhere fully in the world. He was in the world. God did not make the world and end up somehow 
separated from the world. He is everywhere present in the world. And what we mean by that is not just that God is, is present everywhere, like he envelops the world or that he permeates the world, but that everywhere you can conceive of, God is fully present there. And so if you went down to the smallest little packet of space you possibly could find and you got down there, smaller than the smallest subatomic atom and you got, or subatomic particle, you got down there and you looked, there is God present, not in part, but in his fullness, dwelling in the most microscopic area that you can conceive of. And yet, at the same time, he dwells across the universe in his fullness. He is in his fullness here, now, present in this room as he is fully present in rooms elsewhere, as he is presently filled anywhere that a worship service is going on. But what's more, not just, not just present where worship services are going on. He is present everywhere. He is present where people are blaspheming him. He is present where people are sleeping. He is present where people are simply sitting down to a late lunch or getting ready to do whatever the routine of their normal Sunday is. He is fully present there. He is fully present here. He is fully present there. He is everywhere. We call this omnipresence. Omnipresence doesn't just mean that God is here, but he's here in part, and part of him is over there, and part of him is over there. This is what we mean when we talk about when Jen Wilkin, at least in her book, talked about God being immeasurable. He is fully here, and he is fully there, and he is fully everywhere, and you can't put a ruler up to him. You can't measure him in any way, shape, or form. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 says this, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice if I I go up all the way to heaven, you're already there. You're there. The implication is you're fully there. It's not like you've been there before and you can find me again, but you are there. If I go down to Sheol, if I go in the exact opposite direction and I make my bed there, there you are. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike. Both God's omnipresence, east, west, up, down, doesn't matter where you go, you will be found because God is always there. God's omnipresence and omniscience will always follow you. And what John is saying here is that God's presence was not missing from the world. He's not missing in action, so to speak. The light coming does not mean that God has been missing. So when he says the light was coming into the world, it doesn't mean that the light wasn't in the world. It doesn't mean that that somehow the world was created and in its sinfulness, God has so pulled himself back from the world that he was not fully present there. But God has always and will always be present in his creation. The light coming doesn't mean that God is missing. We should feel his presence, given that the fullness of God is here, and it's here in its fullness. We should feel his presence. We should understand his presence. We should know his presence. We should see with our eyes his presence. Now, if this is true, then we should talk about what it means for God to be anywhere in particular, because we make mention of that, and the Bible makes mention of that many, many times. After all, he shows himself to Moses in the burning bush. He shows himself to the people on Sinai. 
He goes before the people as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He fills his temple with glory. How is, how is this different? How is, how is it that God can be everywhere at all times, and yet specifically in certain places at certain times? How can we say that God has left the temple during the exile if God is everywhere all the time? How do we, how do we figure that kind of stuff out? Again, Augustine will help us. Augustine writes this, and I'll highlight the things that are truly important here talking about the sending of the word as flesh. Certainly, he, meaning the word, was sent there from where he was, which doesn't make any sense. How can you be sent where you are? This is the problem that Augustine's picking up on. Jesus is sent, the Son of God is sent, but if he is sent and he's ever-present, how can he be sent where he is? So he just, Augustine very helpfully just says, that happened. So, he's, so certainly he was sent there from where he was, but if he was sent in the world because he came forth from the Father, he both came into the world and was in the world. He was sent therefore where he already was. Therefore, since without any commencement of time, the word was in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was God, it was in the word itself without any time at what time the word was to be made flesh and dwell among us. And when this fullness of time had come, God sent his son made of a woman, that is, made in time. And here's the important part, that the incarnate word might appear to men. So what we would say is that there is an appearance of God. What The better word for that might be, he makes himself manifest to us. That God is everywhere all the time, every time. That there wasn't a time when he was less in one place than he is more in this place. That, that doesn't happen. But he will manifest himself. He will make himself known. He will appear to us at some point in time more fully. And so even now as the word is coming to us, what John doesn't want you to think is that that particular manifestation of God means that God wasn't fully there. God is always fully present everywhere. And furthermore, he goes on to say, not only was he in the world, but he goes on to say that the world was made through him. That is, not just is his presence tangibly there with you, even if you can't feel him, but that everywhere you look, there is evidence that God was here. He has left indelible signs everywhere that reads, this is mine, I have made this. From the sun, the moon, and the stars, to the birds, the fish, and the beasts of the field, the intricacies of how plants work, to the logic and precision of physics, math, or chemistry, God's left traces of himself all over and everywhere. Psalm 8 says this, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, all the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. He says, God's heavens declare his majesty and even his graciousness to men. The fact that we rule over the earth 
The psalmist says that is evidence of God's majesty as well. It's imprinted upon us everywhere we turn, everywhere we look, God is there. He has either left symbols that he is there and he is fully present there. Yet, point number two, even though that is all very true, God is unseen by everyone. John finishes that thought by saying in verse 10, yet the world did not know him. Listen, there are many ways that we could point out how evil and dark the world is. I don't have to go back too terribly far to think of genocides and atrocities and the evil of the last century and a half, two centuries, but we can go back three centuries, four centuries. How many centuries would you like to go back to maybe catalog all the evils of mankind that men have perpetrated on other men? We have a tremendous ability to make other men our slaves, to treat them as nothing, treating them as nothing more than possessions to be used, abused, discarded, and destroyed. Somebody might come back and say, well, that's, that was a previous time, right? I'm standing in the dark waiting for the light, but the light is coming. Men are getting better. We don't have all of that anymore. And, and anyways, I was just a few men. In my defense, I would give you this. Every comment section on every internet page ever. There is nothing that unleashes the actual depravity of man like allowing human beings to remain anonymous so that they neither have to fear God nor do they have to fear man. And when they can say whatever they want without consequence, then we see how evil and how wicked people are. People are simply the worst. It has been said that human depravity is the only objectively provable, provable theological doctrine, and that was said before the internet came about. How much more do we know it today? Paul famously quoted Psalm 140 in Romans 3. Keep me safe from violent men. This is from Psalm 140. It's not the quote in Romans 3. Keep me safe from violent men who plan evil in their hearts. They stir up wars all day long. They make their tongues as sharp as snakes bite. Viper's venom is under their lips. Indeed, such venom is not only found on our lips, sometimes it is found on our fingertips. And yet, with all the wars, with all the hatred, with all the anger, with all the ugliness, with all the lust and the idolatry that is in the world, with all of that, John says here that it's not adultery. It's not lust. It's not your anger. It's not your filthiness of speech. It's not even that you turn on one another that makes this world such a dark place. He says specifically this, that God is everywhere and you don't see him. That is what shows you how evil you are. That is what shows you how dark the world is. It's not just the monsters of history. It's not just the internet it's not just hypocrisy, lust, or pride. It's the fact that we don't know and we don't see God. His presence is everywhere. His work surrounds us, and yet we do not know him. John 3, 19 through 20 reads this way. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil 
hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. And notice the connection back to verse 5. They did not know him. In verse 5, you could read that as the ESV reads it as the darkness has not overcome it. But as we said, that can also easily be read as the darkness has not understood it. He is saying that darkness, that darkness is the world. The world is incredibly dark. It does not know God. It doesn't comprehend God. God is everywhere present. He has shown himself to the world. He is everywhere fully there with them. And his signposts are all up, all over the place, and they do not know them. I'm reminded of Matthew 6, verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Friends, John is telling us this is how dark the world is, that although God is everywhere present, we do not see him. We do not know of him. We do not feel him. We need God to reveal himself to us, to manifest himself. John then goes on in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now that is possibly, and I think it is, a reference to what Jesus is going to do. He came to his own people. He came to the Jews. The first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John are basically an extrapolation of that one verse. He came to his own people, but they didn't receive him. He continually had to fight with them. He continually had to fuss with them. He continually had to work on them to understand who he was and to understand what he did. And in the first 11 chapters of John, they never get it, but it's also a record of what God has done with his own people. He came to them. He manifested himself to them in the burning bush, in the giving of plagues, in the protection from enemies in the provision in the wilderness, in the conquest of the land, in the sacrifices of their worship, in his continual mercy over them, in the miracles performed by his prophets, in the warnings that he provided through the same. In all of these things, God has manifested that he is the God of all creation. He has given them revelation of himself. He has manifested himself, not in the way that he is present everywhere, but specifically to them. And they did not receive him as God. They rightly confessed in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Lord is one. And the record from that point on out is nothing but idolatry. They didn't receive him as God. They received him as a God. They received him as one of many possibilities. They, they received him in, in a way that they wanted to manufacture him, but they did not receive them as God. John Calvin is rightly quoted as saying, the human heart is a factory of idols. In that same passage, Calvin goes on to say this, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It is sunk in the grossest ignorance. He says, it is, it is the most ignorant you can be. You do not know who God is. He is all around you. You don't know who he is, and so you make God up. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. 
our inability to know, see, and understand God as the fountainhead of all of our evil. All of those things come from the fact that we don't know, we don't understand, we don't perceive that God is everywhere amongst us. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It is the ignorance of God that empowers our evil in the world. Yet, there is good news. John goes on in verses 12 through 13 to talk about all who did receive him. Again, that is both looking forward to those who would actually believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is also looking at the history of Israel because not all of Israel failed as Israel. There was always a remnant. They received God on his own terms. They didn't commit idolatry. They listened to his voice. They didn't, as 1 Kings 19.18 says, bow the knee to Baal. But they remained true to God. To these, he says, he gave the right to become children of God. You'll notice that it doesn't say he gave them the right to become sons of God. That term is unique and it is only applied to Jesus. But you can be a child of God. The Apostle Paul does much the same. He does call us all sons. So he, had, he doesn't adopt the distinction that John makes, but he does distinguish us from being natural sons and adopted sons. Christ is a natural son. We are adopted sons. In both, in both, there's the same idea and the same difference. When we know God through Christ, we are put into the closest and most intimate relationship with him that we can be. But Christ is distinct. He is a different kind of son. This is the right that believing in Christ gives us. That belief, he then explains, is to, to believe in his name. All who did receive him, who believed in his name. Again, it's not just the verbalization of the sound Jesus. It's not just that you were meant to stand in front of people and say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. What Jesus is that? Who is this Jesus? It is not the sound that matters, as though God accepts it, as though it's a password into heaven. Knock, knock. Jesus, come on in, right? That's not what it is. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in who Jesus is, his character, his credentials. It is to trust in who God has declared him to be and what he has promised and what he has actually done. Recently, my father-in-law's credit card was, his, his credit card number, not the actual credit card, but the number was stolen. And somebody went out on the internet and bought stuff. Right? That's why you steal a credit card. You go out on the internet and you buy stuff. Um, ironically, the guy put down a shipping address. He changed the shipping address, so they should be able to track him down, which seems like a really silly thing to do. I don't know how you, would, I don't know how you steal stuff from the internet with somebody else's credit card, but nevertheless, thieves do this all the time. This is fraud, right? They, they come and they'll steal your social security number. They'll steal your bank information. They'll steal your social security or credit card numbers, and they will go out and they will pretend to be you. They will use your name while they are not you. So many people have fraudulently confessed that they believe in Jesus without actually being those who believe in Jesus. Like these people who scam credit cards. 
They think that they believe in Jesus. But the Jesus they are thinking of is not the Jesus of reality. He is not the Jesus of John. He's not the Jesus of the New Testament. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. He is not the Jesus of infinite worth. To know his name and to believe in it is to trust in the picture of Jesus given to us in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And to believe that those are accurate and true pictures of who Jesus is. So that when we trust in his name, we're trusting in the one that John reveals to us when he says, this, these 20 chapters are giving you an implication of who Jesus is. They're giving you a sketch of who Jesus is. That is the Jesus we are to believe in. John doesn't mean that you can pick and choose from the picture I'm painting for you in order to build up your picture of Jesus. He says, no, no, this is who Jesus is, the miracle-working, crucified, risen Son of God. It's not always the picture that we want of Jesus. Jesus is willing to say incredibly hard things to us. He demands full and complete loyalty from us. He will not have you divided to him. He demands that we change to fit his desires. He does not change to fit us, but we change to fit him. He demands that we lay down our lives. He demands that we serve others. I'm going to tell you right now, friends, if you read the New Testament and you read about Jesus, you read scripture at all, and you are not challenged about who you are, you are not reading the Bible well. You have not arrived. You are not perfect. If you think for a second that Jesus has come simply to affirm who you are, you don't know Jesus. The Jesus that you are trusting in is a fraud. Jesus hasn't come to affirm who you are, but to make you into what you're not. Now this does seem to put quite a bit of animus on us, that we are to believe, that we are to confess his name, to receive him. These are important words to use. But John helps us by reminding us that it is not all on us. These outward demonstrations of our belief are good and right, and we need to have those. And we should never talk in such a way that those things are not important. But he does come back around and say that there's also something that has to happen behind the scenes. He talks about those who receive him, those who believe in his name, were those born not by the will, nor the will of the flesh, not by blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's not by ancestry. It's not by you ginning up belief. It's not by you making yourself believe, but it is by the work of God making you new again. This is the introduction, we might say, to the new birth that is being talked about in John chapter 3. You must be born by God. This, friends, is completely passive. No one in here called to be born. You didn't knock on the door of the womb and say, okay, mom, time, let's go, right? Like, that was completely passive. You were completely passive in the whole thing, and this also is completely passive. This is a work that God does in you. John is being incredibly clear here, as he will throughout the entirety of his gospel. It is a work that God must do in people. That doesn't mean that our outward confession, our outward reception, and our outward belief of Jesus Christ is not important. Sometimes people pin these things on one another. We're not saying that the choice is unimportant. There aren't anonymous Christians going out there that God has elected from before the foundation of the world who just never actually find out about Jesus. It doesn't work that way. 
John says that they must receive him. He says that they must believe in him. But he also says that God must be the one who has worked in them to that effect. So are we to call on people to believe? Are we to call on people to receive? Amen. Are we to trust that God is the one working behind that? Amen. And you are not safe because of a choice that you have made. No matter what your intent was in that moment when you were seven and you walked the aisle, you are not saved because of one momentary choice. You are saved because you have received the Lord Christ and because God has worked in you for that. You have to trust and rely upon God. Pinning these two things together is like arguing whether or not an engine or a steering wheel is more important to a car. Listen, it doesn't matter. They're both really important. Having a steering wheel and being able to change direction without being able to go is worthless. Being able to go and not know where you're going is just as worthless. You lose one, you lose the whole thing. We cannot put choice over God's work in people's lives. They both work together. John 3.3, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to look for the kingdom of God, but unless you're born again, you ain't going to ever see it. Chrysostom said something quite beautiful. He says, if we haven't received him, we are still, and the word that he uses is melted to the world. You are at one of the world. Have you ever spilled wax on fabric? You've ever put melted wax on something? It is impossible to get out. I don't care if you put it in the freezer and you bang it. I don't care if you do the ironing thing. You ain't getting it out. And he says, if, if, you have not, if you have not trusted yourself to Christ, if you haven't received him, that is a sign that you are still melted to the world. You are still adhered to the world. You are still stuck on the world. And he advised his people specifically to give that up. Do not trust in the world. Trust in the Lord. Friends, we are lost fully and totally without the light of Christ. We are hopelessly dead in our sins. For without him, we cannot find our way to God. We are blind without the light that Jesus Christ brings to us. And this is how we're lost. We are lost not because we don't know where we should go or where we want to go or what lies in front of us. We are lost because we don't know where we've come from. We've lost sight of our creator. And in our idolatry, we make things that are not our creators. But Christ has come to be our lamp, our guide, our door, our sacrifice, our way, and our life. That we might have eternal life through him. That he might reverse the curse that hangs over us that has blinded our eyes. That he has come to give us light instead of darkness. And to give us sight. So friends, trust in him today. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your soul. Trust him with everything you have. As Mark Dever says, the gospel of Jesus Christ calls for a radical response. The gospel isn't merely an additive that can make our already good lives better. It's a really good word. It's not an additive. It's not something you say, I've got my, my life like 50% kind of hooked up here. I'm, I'm really making it, but I, I need a little bit more. So I'm just going to tack a little bit of Jesus on there. He says, that's not what it's for. The gospel isn't merely an additive that can make our already good lives better. It is a message of wonderful good news for those who know and realize their desperation before God. Friends, whether you have known him for decades 
or for the first time, even today, feel him moving in you and changing you, do not leave without remembering that you have to choose Christ. You have to receive him. You have to believe on who he is as he has been revealed. And in doing so, he will deliver you from the present evil age. In doing so, he will remake you and renew you. For in him, there is hope of a dawn. Because we do indeed live in a bad, bad world. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are thankful for his goodness and his kindness to us in all things. We are thankful that although our sin before you is manifested in our ignorance, our sheer ignorance of how close you are to us, how near you are every moment that we stand in the presence of an almighty God. Father, your Son has come to give us that light and understanding that we might be reconciled to you, that we might live one day with you fully manifested in front of us in glory and in joy. So there will be no need for other lights because you will be the light that shines upon us in all things. So Father, we ask that those of us who are shining with your light might be able to go out into the darkness of the world to proclaim the goodness of your light, to show men and women the goodness of our God and the evilness of their own hearts. May you show that to us today. May we not leave without thinking that we need our Lord. We need the light of the gospel. May we go with that firmly in place and go not only with the knowledge of the need, but of the provision that Jesus Christ has given us, that his death on the cross has freed us from the penalty that we owed and his resurrection has brought to us way, truth, and life. May you be glorified in this today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.